0: I completely spent yesterday uh, in a park in upstate New York rethinking through everything I wanted to say tonight. So you'll have to bear, bear with me. This is fresh. But, you know, when you, when you do what I do, your job tonight is to show up and to tell you all the great things we're doing in South Sudan and tell you what a difference you're making and basically raise a lot of money, right? Um, that's not what we're going to do tonight. Because the truth is, um, it's hard what we do. And I find myself discouraged at times. And I've been on a journey that has helped me to take my, kind of my, to be honest with you, my vision off of constantly calling on God to do something and and wondering what my role is. And so uh, I I, I have a a quote here I want to read to you that's from a, a mystic monk. He says, when I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it was difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my nation. When I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't change the town as an older man, so I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realized the only thing I can change is myself. And suddenly I realized that if long ago I had changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family. My family and I could have made an impact on our town, and their impact could have changed the nation, and I could indeed have changed the world. I want you to know that I will feel successful tonight if tomorrow morning you wake up and you look in the mirror and you look at yourself and you say, I am a little Christ. But I got to get you there by telling you a little story about my own life and water is basic. So are you willing to walk there with me? Yeah. Okay. Now, I, there's some background noise here. Am I doing something wrong here? Or, we're okay? Okay. So uh, to get you there, I want to take you back to 1955. 1955 is a great year. That's when Disneyland first opened its doors. It's when uh, McDonald's served the first of what would become billions and billions and billions of artery-clogging burgers. Some defenders of McDonald's are talking about its health food. Now, um, it's also the year that Bill Gates and his good friend Steve Jobs was born. Can you imagine both guys born in the same year? What a difference they made in our world. In 1955, the average salary was $3,200. You could buy a new car for about $1,500 and you could find a great apartment for a whopping sum of $87 a month. Oh, by the way, there's one other really important thing that happened in 1955. Our grocery shelves finally had fish sticks. What an exciting time. There's, a, there's something else that happened in 1955. Let me tell you about it. On May 10th, 1955, the new police chief from Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, arrived in Ye, South Sudan, and he had all of his police officers line up in formation. And he proceeded to immediately then have them machine gunned down. Mike and I visited the mass grave where they were cut down. Waters Basic just completed a new borehole there. This was a time when the Republic of Sudan had just gained independence from its British Egyptian overseers, the largest country in Africa. Sudan was deeply divided between the mostly Arab Muslim North and the black animist Christian South. Northerners had always had the upper hand. That's the way you do colonialism. You raise some group over another group. And the northerners quickly used their power to continue to oppress the Southern countrymen and women. Christian missionaries were kicked out, schools closed, names changed to Islamic names. Positions of power went only to those from the North. Over about 542 positions in the new government, one went to a Southerner. Centuries of oppression enhanced under independence meant certain civil war. For the Republic of Sudan, 1955, and independence was more than the birth of a nation, it was also the birth of its first civil war. At times, the North was supplied arms by the US, Britain, the Soviet Union, Egypt, and Iran. I give you that list because when you're an oppressed group, and you have the biggest powers in the world supplying guns to the people oppressing you, you can kind of feel like you have no agency. What it meant for the fledgling Southerners was critical. Nearly 500,000 Southerners were killed during the first Civil War, 80% of them civilians, leading to the mass displacement of people from their homes. That war went from 1955 to 1972, and then a tenuous peace was signed in which the North continued to oppress the South, and in 1983, the North thought it'd be a good idea to, impl- to uh, insist on staria law across the entire country. Guess what happened? Civil War number two. Over the next 22 years, from 1983 to 2005, of the eight million people that made up what was then the area of South Sudan, two million, 25%, were killed. Four million, half the country was displaced, homeless. And the rest did everything they could to hold on. Now, when you hear hold on, I'm not sure you get it. I think Mike might get it now. When I say hold on, I mean you kept your sanity as the young men in your village were rounded up by your northern oppressors and taken north to be slaves. And if, uh, in an attempt to create mass intimidation, they decided not to take them north, they might fly back over your village and drop them one by one from airplanes. I mean... When I say, hold on, keep your faith as your infant daughter dies in your arms because you don't have the 50 cents to buy medicine to keep her alive. I mean, falling asleep at night, night after night after night in the deep darkness of the bush for years, year after year, not knowing when you wake up in the morning if you'll be alive or your child alive or your spouse alive. When I say, hold on, knowing that your sons, if they were not taken by the Northern Army, would then be taken by your own army and forced to be child soldiers at the age of 9 and 10 and 11. You've all heard about the lost boys of South Sudan. 50,000 young boys who decided they didn't want to be child soldiers anymore and walked 2,000 miles to Ethiopia, half of them killed on the way. This is the state of the country of Sudan for more than 50 years. In 2005, peace was finally declared. By the way, oil had been found, and the countries of the world thought peace might be a good idea. And during that six-year peace treaty, uh, South Sudan had a chance to decide, would they stay unified or would they succeed? And it's in that moment that I learned about water. It was totally an accident. One of the things I get asked all the time is, how can I do, young people say, how can I do something meaningful like you do? My common response is always just say yes to what's in front of you. But tonight, I want to put a little more twins to that. In that moment uh, of peace in 2005, I was asked to come lead a brainstorming session for a bunch of religious religious leaders, guys like Bob and a bunch of other guys like him in one room trying to get them to work together and dream together. And for a week, they actually did that. Uh, They went from dreaming about surviving the night to dreaming about what they could do for their country, building uh, churches and farms, roads, schools, co-ops, medical clinics. The last day, this little old priest very tired old man, raised his hand. And in Africa, when an old man raises his hand, everybody shuts up and they listen. It's really unusual. (laughs) And he said, you know, I think we've wasted our time this week. Dreaming seems like a complete waste of time. If we don't give our people clean water, our dreams won't matter, we're simply gonna die. And it was at that moment that Water is Basic was born. And I'll give you the statistics real quick to get them out of the way. 11 years we've been working on clean water in the newest and most broken nation on earth. We've drilled our first well on July 28, 2008, and uh, we celebrated our 1,000th water project just two months ago. Yeah. That's more than 1 million people enjoying clean, fresh water and the residual effects of water, like going to school. Residual effects. Like having money to buy a malaria net so your children don't get malaria. Not spending all day and all your few... Calories, looking for water. Today, we have more than 5,000 supporters from all over the U.S., from five-year-old kids doing lemonade stands and public schools and Catholic schools, and we have U- th- three U.S. staff and a slew of volunteers. Today, we have turned over to our partners in South Sudan more than $6 million to the 25 full-time South Sudanese staff, and they have been the solution to their own problem. We are truly building a nation together. Now, as impressive as that all sounds, I want you to listen to me. You need to know I get discouraged a lot. I would say I feel discouraged as often as I feel encouraged with the work we do. That's part of the story I want to tell you tonight to help us get to a place. You see, as hard as we've worked, it seems sometimes like we're not making any progress at all. Mike shows up there. Last, a couple weeks ago, and he says, man, these guys have it hard. And I have to look around and go, I, you know, they do, and I'm not sure it's improved much. I can distinctly remember flying over Sudan. It's a unique thing. You're working there, you fly into Uganda, and from Uganda to Nairobi, and in Nairobi you get on a jet, and the next thing you know, you look at the map, and you're flying over the people that you just were with. I'm on an air-conditioned plane. My seat is reclined. I have a spectacular feast spread out in front of me. Now, you know I'm lying right there. I'm on an airplane. There's no spectacular (laughs) feast on a plane. But I got a bunch of food in plastic. It's a lot more than they have. And I remember writing an email to my family telling them how down I was about our progress, about how far we had to go and how tough the people's lives really were. And it was my son... My pain in the butt, son, the one we had to mortgage our house to send him to military school, the one who discovered recently he got kicked out of every school he ever went to, he said, you know, it's your fault. And we said, what do you mean it's our fault? And he said, well, I didn't know it. You raised me in such a way I didn't know I got kicked out of every school. This son who said, Dad, instead of thinking about changing the world or a nation, why not think about the person whose world you changed? And then ask, what if that person was your son? would the trip have mattered? Now, I want you to hold on to that for a minute. Because five years into this new experiment called Water is Basic and this new experiment called South Sudan, civil war broke out again. And the world that had been pouring money and resources into the country ran as fast as they could. You know, I'm actually surprised the world was... Surprised that they fell into civil war. We had a nation that had a 90% illiteracy rate, 60% of the roads were impassable, basically no schools. The highest number of illiterate generals in any military in the world. Illiterate. How were they supposed to lead a new country? How were they supposed to manage the resources? How were they supposed to determine who would run the country? And of course, war broke out. So in December of 2013, our worst fears were realized. And over the last five and a half years, our country and our people have suffered so much all over again. Again, 50,000 people have died. Two million have fled to refugee camps in Uganda and Congo. And over four million have been displaced within the country again. Last year, severe hunger reached almost seven million people, the largest in human history. That's because planting and harvesting keeps getting interrupted by, by fighting. rape a tool of war, has gone from a fear to just a pure, mere expectation by all women. Missionaries and non-government organizations have pulled out, and there has been a desperate pall over the, nation, the entire nation. When you've spent your entire life in this kind of experience. Would you blame any mother or father for sitting there under the mango tree and crying out, Where are you, God? Where are you, God? My child has died in my hands. Where are you, God? Our school is burned down. I've asked that question many times in our work. I still ask it. My daughter's just returned from eight months on the Guatemala-Mexican border where she tended to the feet of migrants who are 1,000 miles into their 2,000-mile walk to our borders. The stories were Horrific. I asked it when I landed uh, from Africa this time as my wife shared with me the seven different meetings she had in the week I was gone with women who had been abused by their husbands. And the list goes on. You've thought it too, haven't you? Have you ever asked yourself, where are you, God? Have you ever been in one of those moments? Maybe in a classroom as a teacher looking at what's going on in the boardroom In the bedroom, in your marriage? It's not what I expected, God. Where are you in my marriage? In the hospital room. Why, Lord? Where are you, God? Where are you, God? I mean, we know the verses. We're good church people. We memorize them, right, at Vacation Bible School. Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Really? Where are you, God? Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. Really? Many times I've said, where are you, God? You see, I've been struggling for some time with that question. In our postmodern, hyper-connected 21st century world, we have never been more aware of the problems that plague our world. Whether it be the 2 million refugees from South Sudan or the 27 million slaves in our world today, the most in our human history, The global sex slavery business generates $32 billion worth of profits each year, but the average sex slave worker is sold for a mere $100. Because of social media, we know that the average American owns 19 pairs of shoes, but over 300 million children worldwide will never experience what it's like to walk with a pair of shoes. You see, with the needs in our world, I think it's a fully functional, not dysfunctional. I feel like it is a healthy question. A godly question to ask, where are you, God? It's a good question. Maybe my son is right. Maybe we should stop thinking, though, about changing the world. That's really God's job, isn't it? The world. And start being more concerned about changing somebody's world. Maybe we should spend less time looking there and blaming God, and maybe we should spend more time looking in the mirror. Here's why I say that. We know the, the Bible verse, Genesis 1, I'll read it to you first in the New International Version and then in the message. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I like it in the message. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish of the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, the earth itself and every animal that moves upon its face. God created human beings. He created them God-like, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. And then God said, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. My wife has a ministry that spends a lot of time in this area of Genesis 127, where we've gotten so caught up about what men can do and what women can do, what about hierarchy and roles, we've missed completely the basic, simple message that God made us in His image. When I was young in ministry, I used to go once a month to the house of Dr. John Richard and Amama, his wife, very old Indian couple. Uh, They were the parents of my first boss in ministry. The reason I would go there is because Dr. John, while he was dribbling curry and rice off the sides of his mouth, would often make statements that would blow you away. And as a young person, I wanted every morsel. I'll give you an example. One, one time at lunch, he suddenly stopped and he said, Steve, uh, you know, you run a, a, a new ministry. Well, what would you do if somebody showed up one day and just said, hey, I'd like to give you $10 million? Now, I'm not an idiot. I immediately started thinking of all the things we would do with $10 million. And while my brain was racing really quick so I could impress this godly man, uh, he quickly said, I just want to tell you, The reason I ask that question is because after World War II and I had just begun the Evangelical Alliance of India, I got a knock at the door. We're this young ministry. We were on our knees all the time. And it was two U.S. government officials. It turns out India didn't let you take money out of the country. So the U.S. government had all this money in India that they had to leave there. And they'd been asking around, and everybody said, if you're going to give it to somebody, give it to Dr. John Richard. So they knocked on his door, and they offered him a million dollars. We're talking 1946. This is big money. This is, before you, this is before the crazy $87 a month rent in 1955. <laughs> and he said, Steve, I looked at him, and I said, no, thank you. And he said, of course, they were flabbergasted. Why would you turn away a million dollars? He said, this entire ministry is run on our knees. We don't know from minute to minute what God is going to do, and we're on our knees all the time. If you give us that million dollars, we'll never get on our knees again. That's the kind of stuff that would dribble out of his mouth And I tell you that story so that you'll respect what he used to say to summarize Genesis 127. He used to say, Steve, we are supposed to be little Christs. C.S. Lewis says it like this. The Son of God came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. That's from mere Christianity. So I say all this um, to make a point because I don't want to be all positive. I want to be honest about the journey I've been on, of struggling and hearing from my son. Maybe it's not about changing the world. It's about changing somebody's world. And about what does it mean to be an image bearer, to be a little Christ on a day-to-day basis? You see, it's no fair to ask me what is it like to get to do what I do? It's no fair to sit on an airplane seat next to me and say, wow, that must really be amazing because we're all little Christs. We all are responsible for God showing up when we show up. We have a huge sex industry in this world where 95% of the women who strip aren't doing it because they're looking for fun. They're doing it because they were sexually abused. 70% spent their early years in foster care. It's a desperate need for foster care parents. I believe that when a child finds a home, maybe your home, God has shown up in you. Most sex slaves are trafficked at age 12, and yet 87% of the college men in this city and every other city looked at porn this week. What if God's showing up men... Is you, little Christs, not objectifying God's other little Christs women. Wouldn't it be awesome if when a woman walked into a bar or a class or a Sunday school class, she felt 100% safe all the time? A little Christ looking at another little Christ. We are experiencing one of the longest, most powerful economic seasons in our country's history, and still yet half a million people spend every night with no place lay their head. What if God showing up is us little Christs stopping at the intersection, not just to hand a few dollars out of a slightly open window, but to look someone in the eye and recognize them too as little Christs? Because I know when we are noticed, when someone looks us in the eye, when we are recognized, God has showed up. It's personal to me because my Dad has a brother who disappeared for 40 years on the streets. He just turned back up last year. Just met Jesus through somebody who met him on the street. Half the world lives on, lives on $2 a day or less. And yet we continue to spend $400 million every Halloween on costumes for our pets. And you know who you are. We can look at your Instagram. <laughs> What if we saw our giving and our money and our giving out of our abundance as Christ giving to other little Christs instead of us releasing our money? When we manage our money in certain ways, God shows up. More than 22 million children qualify every day for a free lunch in our country. That means they come from homes that make less than $32,000 a year. What if fellow students, as you start school this year, as little Christs, You saw every other kid in class as a little Christ. And when you looked them in the eye and gave them dignity and love, they went home feeling like God showed up. I can go on. We can go on all night. We can just sit here and share the opportunities we have. But I'm not going to do that. because my son already said it pretty well, what if it was me, Dad, you helped today? What if it was not about changing the world but changing somebody's world? From looking up and saying, where are you, God, to looking in the mirror and saying, hey, little Christ, hey, little Christ. What if in the morning when we looked in the mirror instead of looking at our bags under our eyes and our hair and our love handles and our abs and our whatever, we instead tomorrow looked in the mirror and said, little Christ, I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Today, I will show up in someone's life because of this, this little Christ being in the game. So I'm not as discouraged as often as I used to be because now I see that jerry can of water that the young lady walks away, and Mike has some fabulous pictures of that, as God showing up because now she can go to school. That few dollars for malaria medicine, God showed up that meal shared and paid for, God showed up. I no longer look to heaven and ask, where are you, God? But instead, I look in the mirror and I ask, did you show up today? Did you show up? So, I'm glad to be here tonight because I love you guys. We've been in the game a long time, and I want to leave you with this. Whatever we do with our lives... For Christ's sake, let's be little (coughs) Christs. John 14, 19 says, Christ says this, Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you'll see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And I add to the scripture, I'm telling you, it's me adding it, okay? We will not see Christ anymore, personally. But little Christs are everywhere. They are you. They are me in our day-to-day situations. You can be God showing up just as much as I am in South Sudan, okay?